This morning's sermon, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Before we begin, let us seek the Lord's blessing. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word. We can open it, we can turn to it and hear your voice and know your will, hear your promises, your corrections and rebukes. But Father, we need more than just your word, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to illumine that word so that we might see and understand. And it always amazes me, Father, how dumb and blind I can be. Yet you're merciful and gracious, and as we go to your word and your spirit opens it to us, we begin to see, and most of all, we see ourselves as naked, poor, wretched, and blind. And we see you as this glorious one who's willing to cover us and meet us in that state. Fill us and strengthen us. So, Father, I ask this morning that we truly would see ourselves, most importantly, and then see you above all things, and see what it is that you do for us and in us. So, Father, bless this time now, and do it because of your great mercy, and because we ask it in your beloved Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this section here is probably one of the most well-known portions of Scripture. And this morning it was read for us, Matthew's depiction. And I, don't, I hope you can remember what that was like, because I'm going to read this, and it's, what's interesting is how different they are. And Matthew's rendition, as, as you will note, is, it's kind of very spiritually minded, all about the inner person and attitudes of the heart where this seems to be more physical. Now, I'm going to read these few verses, and I want you to listen about these differences and what's, what's going on here. Starting in verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This here is commonly known and understood as the Beatitudes. But they're distinctly different from the Beatitudes that we read about in, in Matthew. And sometimes we ask her why. What is, what is going on here? Well, first of all, let me back up and answer this question. If you've ever asked before, why is it called the Beatitudes? I asked that. <laughs> why the Beatitudes? Did you read uh, anything about that word Beatitude in there? You didn't. But it's titled that. These are the Beatitudes. Well, the word Beatitudes comes from the Latin. The Latin noun, Beatitudo. And I probably said that wrong, which means happiness. In the Vulgate, which is in the Latin version of translation of the Bible, the book of Matthew titles this section with Beatitudines, if I said that correctly. And Beatitudes was the anglicized version of that word, and it just became known as the Beatitudes. So there's a little historical 
reason why they're called that. Now, Jesus is revealing here through the, this section the way of blessing. And that word blessing is the way of happiness, true happiness, the true blessings of life. If you want to know true blessing and true happiness and where it comes from, Jesus says this is where it comes from. He's showing us the way to his kingdom. So if the Spirit gives us ears to hear this morning, these words become our life. These words become our blessing, and we get and we understand. But if the Spirit does not, they seem to fall, as they say, on deaf ears. We don't understand. And here's also why. Because Jesus' kingdom is upside down and opposite to the world. It, it, the flesh cannot get its head around it. It does not make sense. Now, because for a moment, who in their right mind ever says, blessed are the poor? Jesus. Now, anybody in the world, if you were to take a microphone and go around, would you say, blessed are the poor? Blessed are the hungry? Blessed are the mournful? Blessed are those who are hated? Try to find one person who'd say, oh, yeah. No, the world says everything opposite, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are rich. Blessed are those who are full and satisfied. Blessed are those who are laughing and filled with joy. Blessed are those who have great self-esteem and are lifted up and raised up before others. And blessed are those who have glory. Blessed are those. Right? Come on. That's exactly how it works. But here's, here's, here's something else that's interesting. Because this particular text has all these very physical features as opposed to Matthew. And what I mean by that is he talks, he, notice how he doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. He does in Matthew. He doesn't say blessed are the, those who are hungry for righteousness as he does in Matthew. He just says blessed are the hungry. And there's several things he says in Matthew that he doesn't say here. Blessed are peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. And, and so there's other blessings in Matthew that aren't stated here. And sometimes people get all nervous about that and wonder, and the scholars are, well, is it, they, they start to question the word of God. Is this, we say this is an infallible word of God. What's going on here? Well, it seems pretty basic when you understand that this is the primary message Jesus was preaching and teaching. Jesus went about, and what did he declare, he says? He went, goes about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He preached the kingdom everywhere he went. So guess what? He doesn't go home, go to his study, and create a brand new message. He's declaring about the kingdom. And, and, and here's also interesting. Some think, well, well, here's the Sermon on the Mount, and they're so different. Well, what's interesting is in Matthew, Jesus goes up on a mountain. And, what's, and here in Luke, if you go back to verse 17, it says, And when he came down with them and stood on a level place. And he, then he delivers this. We're in two different locations. And so it's not too hard to understand. And many scholars get this and see this, and they argue with the other scholars. Listen, different time, different place, different demographics, different situation, but you're seeing all the similar content because this is what Jesus preached about. Jesus went about declaring the kingdom. And what's he saying here? 
At the very first words out of his mouth are blessed those who are poor. For what? For yours is the kingdom of God. He starts with what needs to be started with right here, the heart of people in order for them to have enter into the kingdom. So of course he's going to... Probably every one of his messages started off with those who are truly blessed. Where does this blessing come from? Who enters into his kingdom? Who does his kingdom belong to? Who do the kingdom blessings go to? And so he probably... This is, this is probably how he commonly started most of his speeches about the kingdom. And so we shouldn't get all worried and concerned about the differences... They were just purely and simply different occasions. And something else I think is important to ask is, I don't know if you're like me, but you're wondering, how, why does he say it's really, it seems like a big difference to say blessed are the poor and blessed are the poor in spirit. One talks about the physical poor who are actually poor, and the other talks about those who are poor in here. Those seem dramatically different. And I think, as some scholars have said, it, it would make sense that if you said, blessed are the poor, in a particular context, Jesus, get this, we understand this. He looks out and he knows every single person's heart. He knows where they're at. And if he was in a particular group and and there was a particular group of poor people, and that particular group of poor people were broken and humbled before God because of their state, they were already poor in spirit. And Jesus says to them, blessed are you who are poor. Because their poverty had created, by the Spirit, a poverty of spirit. And so he didn't have to say that. Now, if he is in a group where there were some, just imagine this, a whole bunch of poor people here, poor people there, and these poor people were, they were proud and and arrogant, and these people were broken and humbled, he he would have said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because to say blessed are the poor would communicate the wrong thing. Because, of course, he's not into poverty for poverty's sake, is he? No, Jesus isn't at all. You know, here's something else to consider. When Jesus declares, blessed are the poor, this is, this is why it, this is such an upside-down kind of a perspective. It makes no sense to the human fleshly ears. Because just read, for example, who the godly and blessed are throughout the Scriptures. You've got Abraham, and it goes on in, in, in Genesis to speak of his servants and his cattle and his donkeys and his camels and what he has. And if you put it all together, because in that, that day, that's how you quantified who was wealthy, Abraham was uber wealthy. And then you go look at someone like Jacob, same thing. Joseph became ruler of the all of the known world at that time, the greatest empire that existed at that time was Egypt. Think of Israel who plunders the greatest empire at that time and takes all their stuff and goes out. Israel is uber wealthy. Think of Boaz who was wealthy but godly. Think of David or Solomon. Solomon was the wealthiest man known on the earth at that time. They didn't know anybody who had greater wealth than that. So those are, those are your key players throughout. Now, in addition to that, you have so many of the Proverbs, which say repeatedly, they make claims like this, Proverbs 22.4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are, listen to this, riches, honor, and life. 
At the beginning of Proverbs, it speaks of wisdom in a couple places. And it says, and wisdom is speaking here. And this is what wisdom says in, in uh, chapter 8, 18. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. So, if all the heroes of faith are wealthy, and it seems to indicate that those who are faithful to God, those who pursue wisdom, and those who honor the Lord get wealthy, it seems like, who do you think are the blessed? Wealthy. So when Jesus shows up and says, blessed are the poor, you're like, what? What's he talking about? Blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Can you understand why that seems like a flip of an upside down kind of understanding? Blessed are the poor. Well, some, one of the, some of the aspects of, of poverty, of being poor, is that it tends to humble. It tends to break. It tends to create a poverty of spirit. So that, it, like not always, some people can be proud, but usually if you're proud and, and you become poor, you get humbled. So it has a tendency to do that. Not necessarily, but it does have a tendency to do that. And it's, again, it's not poverty's for poverty's sake that Jesus is talking about. Because there, there could be many people who are poor who are not poor in spirit. But because poverty tends to, and especially I'm, I'm sure the crowd he's addressing at that point, are humbled in spirit, broken as a result of it. They're looking, guess what else they're looking for? They're looking for deliverance. <laughs> they're looking for help. They're looking for, man, salvation. It just, it, it, you're ashamed of, of where you're at in your situation. And Jesus says, you're the ones who receive the kingdom. The broken And really it is the broken in spirit. Those receive the kingdom. You know, something about it too is that when you're poor, you don't have your own means. You don't have your own strength. You don't have your own success stories to brag about. You can't sit around the, the water cooler or stand around the water cooler at work and talk about all you've accomplished. You've got nothing. Nothing. So, they're also willing to forsake all and follow Jesus. Well, forsake all? Sure. (laughs) What do I have to forsake? Not much. I will give my life fully to him and look to him to provide for me. So they have nothing to impress God with. They have nothing to offer to him. And they are so much like the hymn writer says, nothing To thee I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I have nothing. And so when it comes to us today, we are the ones who this culture would have considered at the time of Jesus as uber rich. Uber rich. And so we have a temptation that's different, that's truly um, that the poor are broken in a situation that we don't have. It's a different kind of scenario. We begin, what happens with riches, what happens with getting stuff and having it, is we begin to find comfort, security, and blessing from the things we have. And so we begin to get really attached to them. And really, and we get our security from them. Just look at, like, if you 
you have stuff and that stuff were to be removed from you, we would have a panic attack. We would go nuts. We would freak out. We'd, let, we'd think the world was over. And why? Because if truth be known, we find our security. We find our help, our comfort from them. That's what we find it in. Because that's what our hearts do with these things. Our hearts are prone to that. So what ends up happening, it's, and this, this doesn't always happen. I'm not saying it's one for one. If somebody with riches is not poor in spirit, that's not true. Because you can have a lot of riches and be poor in spirit. But there's a temptation with riches. There's, it, can, it can become an idol. It can become your God. It can become the thing that protects you, that saves you, that delivers you, that comforts you, that fills you, that gives to you, that blesses you, and it's, it's your thing. And guess what? That can happen to you and me. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, which is a better way of understanding it because somebody could have everything but in their hearts have nothing in light of God. And they find all that, is, all that is in him. And so what they see their stuff as is these huge blessings that they love to bless others with. They give thanks to God for it. They just praise him that, he, that he's gave them these things. And they use them to his praise and to his glory and to his delight. But that, don't, that is, is not easy. Because the work of the Spirit has got to come into a man's heart and begin to show them his state and realize, understand that apart from Jesus, I have nothing. And, I, and my life is only found in him. I am rich in him. And in him I find my richness. But if I find my fulfillment, my joy, my security, my hope in these things, it's not good. And that's, that's the hard part of what riches, is what it can do to our hearts. It can draw us away. That's what they call them, the deceitfulness of riches. We talked at the men's retreat about how things and stuff will do that. They deceive us. It's as if almost like they, they, uh, they promise. They promise every single time what they can't deliver. They hold to, out to us, oh, if, you, if I only had, oh, if I had that 60-inch TV, I'd be happy. And we believe that, and we want that, and we pursue that, and we get that, and when we have that, we find that it really doesn't deliver what I thought. Of. Sure, that's nice, and I really like it, but it's really not as good as I thought it was. But we'll do, here's it, newsflash, we'll do it again. And we'll do it for other things and stuff. Because we think, Man, if I had that, then we start dreaming what it would be like, what it would feel like, what it would smell like, and that would be good, wouldn't it? And we get it, and we have it, and we taste it, we use it for a while, and we're like, yeah, it's okay. And that's what, that's what riches do. They deceive us. And if we're not careful, we find our hearts going towards them and being captivated by them. And we're no longer poor in spirit, looking for Jesus and him alone to satisfy. We're looking to the things of the world. He goes on to say in here, blessed are the hungry. And this, these are all very connected. 
one to another. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And obviously, being hungry is a direct result of being poor. When you're poor, you do not have the resources it takes to get what you need, and so you, you end up becoming hungry because bread costs something, money, and you don't have that money. And then when we start getting hungry, we start begging. We, start, we get to the point where we'll almost do anything for a loaf of bread. Especially, it's imagine your family, and you watch your wife and your children suffering, and you feel yourself responsible. Can you imagine that situation? How horrible that would be? Being in a poor situation, you watch your children crying and your wife, and you see them suffering, and you're hungering, and you're thirsting, and you desperately want to be satisfied in film. You know, we'd almost do anything at that point. And Matthew describes these people as hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which I believe is what Jesus is ultimately getting at here. They're hungering, not just for a loaf of bread, because if it was just simply a loaf of bread, Jesus provides that. You remember the 5,000 who were with him? And he's been teaching them, and they said the crowds are hungry. Well, if it's a loaf of bread you need, Jesus can provide it. He feeds the 5,000 from one loaf, multiplies the fish. So Jesus said, blessed are those who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Not just with the bread, but the bread of life, with Jesus himself. We all, all know through the gospel, Jesus always plays on this, plays on food and drink. And he's the food, he's the drink. And you're, they're probably going, what, huh? You know, I am the bread from heaven. I'm the, he takes the manna. I am the manna. You're the manna. What's going on here? How is this working out? Well, Jesus is revealing to them that if you truly want to be satisfied, if you truly want that, that, that sense of, ah, deep in the soul where it's all good, then you need the bread from heaven. You need the one who can satisfy So often, look at us as people, we hunger and we thirst for things that do not satisfy. That's often what we we call comfort food. What is the idea of comfort food? (laughs) Because we believe that if I could have a certain meal or eat something right now, it would make me feel good. And we, it's a lie, because it might temporarily for that moment, and then after we ate it, you feel bad. Because you know you shouldn't eat it. And you know you took on calories you didn't want to take on. And you did all the stuff that, and now you're, I wish I wouldn't do that. But boy, when it was in your mouth, mmm, 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 comfort. Mmm. And that's the thing that, that so often happens with the things of this world. But Jesus is offering something so much greater. He's offering him, he's offering you a true comfort, true satisfaction. The stuff that doesn't just fill you up, it fills you up to overflowing. He talks about us becoming fountains of life. It's like, wow, overwhelming goodness. And that's what Jesus is offering. We find ourselves not hungry. And you know what astounds us, I think, at times is that when it comes to hunger, we often we often feel a hunger in us. There's a hunger. And what I mean by hunger, there's a desire. And not just for necessarily food. You, uh, we, everyone here has felt hunger for food. There's a desire for it. You want it. But we've also felt hung, hunger for comfort. 
We felt hunger for peace. We felt um, hungry for, for joy, just more fulfillment, just satisfaction, a sense of just rest in the soul. And you, and you know how this is true in all of our lives. You think of what do you do, what, what kinds of things do you do that you find very comforting, that you enjoy, that you delight in. And you'll find that you'll, you'll have a desire or want and you go to these things and you look to these things to give you what you're looking for. But we can look at that hunger and it's telling us, you know the real thing that I'm hungry for? Do you know the real thing that I need and that truly satisfies? Is Jesus. That's truly what I need. All the other stuff is deceptive. It's deceitful. It's deceiving you to think that that's what you truly need. That's why Jesus said to his disciples when he hadn't eaten in a while, he was hungry. And Jesus tells them, I have food that you know not of. What? Yeah. So do the will of my father. What? What strange sayings. What are you talking about? Yeah, I've got... I've got food that you don't understand. Ask yourself the question. And if we're honest with ourselves, you thought, oh, Jesus, you know what? I so often go after the bread of this world to satisfy me. And so rarely think that the bread of heaven will actually satisfy me. Is that actually true? Does he really? Will he? Yes, he will. And if you've, if you've ever been satisfied and built and filled up by Jesus, you will know, you, will, you would stand up and testify, Dean, I'll tell you it's more than true. Jesus is good. And he's good to the last drop. And he's beyond good because he fills you up beyond capacity. That's what Jesus does. That's how he fills and satisfies. And then beyond hunger, you see how this is leading. You know, you're poor, you get hungry. And when you're really hungry in that, you weep. He says, blessed are those who weep, for they shall be comforted. That's what he goes on to say. Blessed are those who weep now. And he says, actually, for you shall laugh. Matthew says comforted. But here he says, you shall laugh. And all of them are connected. But we normally think, once again, worldly thinking, don't we? We think weeping is a bad thing. We don't like it. We don't like to see people weep. But Jesus, once again, turns our world upside down. Because it's only as we're broken over the situation that we will we'll be brought back to life. It's only as we get to understand our hunger and our poverty, and we get to understand what's, what we really need, and we come to that place where we see ourselves and we weep. We see the situation and we weep. You know, remember James, in James chapter 4, he's writing a letter to the church, and he says to them, oh, you guys should stop laughing and start mourning for your situation. You should see where you're at, what's going on. Because as long as everything's fine, we don't think there's ever a reason to weep. But even look at the church in Laodicea, which we've looked at before. They thought everything was just great. There was no reason to weep. But this is what Jesus 
said to her, you say you're rich and I have prospered and I have need of nothing, not realizing you're wretched and pitiable and pitiable and poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We know that Jesus is speaking to a church. This church is very comfortable with where it's at. They're paying their bills. They're enjoying life. They're very comfortable feeling like everything is just great. They have a good family. They go to church. They have a decent job. And all seems good. But the exact opposite is true with their relationship with Jesus. So they were rejoicing when they should have been weeping. They had fallen in in this rut. They'd fallen in love with all the things that they have been given by Jesus. And it's easy to become these people, especially when we have so many things, so much stuff. Life's routines are quite comfortable. It's easy to grow cold towards the Lord and just simply enjoy all his blessings. It doesn't take much, does it? We've all... Have you ever been there, sitting back, grab a cocktail, light a cigar, put up your feet, and just love the good life? And just enjoy those gifts and think, this is is the life right here. Now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I'm not, it's like, is this like anti-stuff? You know, like every blessing God's giving you, no. But it's, here's something to understand. God does something. There's like a trick being played in it. When you get something, you have a blessing. If you don't take that blessing and open it with an open hand to God and just give him raw thanks for it and, and just be thankful for it, it's like it never really comes to fruition and satisfaction. Because the point of it isn't to fall in love with it and start to cherish it and delight in it and try to get more out of it. The point is to take the good, the blessing, and hold it with open hands before the Lord and say, thank you, thank you. And out of thanks, and here's what we do now that we have, out of thanks, we offer it back up to him and we say, Lord, use it however you'd like to use it. I I, I thank you for it and I want to bless you with it and I want to bless others with it. I'm grateful, I'm thankful. A thankful heart that gets that and then can turn around with an open hand and offer to the Lord. They receive more blessing from the thing than the one who hoards it, holds on to it, and tries to get out of it more than it was ever tended from it. It's a pretty wild thing. And this looks at looking at every blessing in your life. You will never truly enjoy it until you open your hands towards the Lord and thank Him for it and then desire to use that for His good and glory. But hopefully we see what we've been given. We see where we're at and we can see that, man, I'm wretched, poor, I'm blind. And, and it brings us, the Spirit brings us to weeping as we see the condition. And that's a blessed condition. It's a blessed condition to see your own heart to see your own loves, to see what it is you've latched onto. It's a rich blessing to know that. That's what Jesus is saying. To get it. To see where, how you're deceiving yourself. Because here's, this is, these are all connected. I'm going to finish with this where he talks about, blessed are you when people hate you. Really? Well, 
If you look at what he says, people hate you when they exclude you, when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Well, I don't know about you. But if you're being hated, spurned, reviled, and disliked, would you say, oh, happy day. This is good. I like this. Could you do that more? No, we normally hate, revile, spurn in return. You want to see someone go, just hate them, revile them, spurn them. How dare you? Why? Ooh, did I just trample on precious? Yes. Me, me, don't hurt me. I love me. That's what we do. We love ourselves passionately. But you know what's fascinating? You look at these apostles who heard what Jesus said here, and they're probably sitting like good little pupils. You know, right, oh, yeah, I get what you're saying here. They even thought they were tough, and they were able to handle a heat. And they were, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm going to do that. That's so funny. Peter was obviously the most vocal of the bunch. Jesus had just finished telling them later on, far past this, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But then, of course, Peter pipes up and says to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Because he's tough. He is going to stand up for Jesus. And so Jesus says to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then Peter responds emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And it, the text says, and they all said the same. Me too, Jesus. Me too. I heard what you said. Well, we all know what happens. And this particular account is given in all four Gospels. All four of them record this event. So, where are those people who are hated, who are reviled, who are spurned, who are counted as evil for Jesus' sake? Where did those boys go? They were off running in the hills somewhere. They didn't show up, did they? And then, let's watch this crowd of apostles after Pentecost. Let's see what happens. Let's see the change. In Acts chapter 5, verse 27, the apostles were out proclaiming Jesus boldly, telling the world in Jerusalem about them. And it says this, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. They've been arrested for this. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, a little different than last time, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. He didn't say who was killed, whom you killed. 
God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they had called in the apostles, they went and discussed what they should do. They beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the proconsul. Listen to this rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now that doesn't sound like the same bunch of guys to me. And the reason is, it's because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had power from on high. It wasn't because they manned up and all of a sudden said, you know, that was stupid what we did back there. We really need to change our ways. No, the Spirit showed up and empowered them. And this is why I think it comes at the end of this section. There's so much said that the, the current apostles hearing this then when it was uttered by Jesus didn't understand. But there's a process and a progression here. Because it was when they were poor in spirit and hungered after Jesus and weep because of their state and, and realize where they were that in that place, what did Jesus do? He, do? he filled them to overflowing with his spirit, that they were able to get up, stand up, and be hated and reviled, and it didn't matter. You know, if you or I can't handle this kind of thing on our inner self, like if we can't handle being hated, reviled, hurt, and wounded, it's usually because the progression is not happening. We're not seeing ourselves as poor in spirit and hungry for Jesus and weeping over our state and then experiencing his filling. And then rising up as he raises us up, we die to ourselves. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the fullness of the spirit dwells and then you're able to walk forward and people say, can, can revile you, can hate you, can spurn you and say all kinds of evil against you. And you can rejoice and give thanks. How is that possible? That is foreign. That is not of this world. That is otherworldly. That does not happen. That is strange. That is stupid. That is bizarre. What is that all about? Well, that is the blessing and work of Jesus in you by the Spirit. And so it's a great indicator for all of us. As I was deeply convicted at working through this. And realize, man, what do I act like when I'm hated or spurned or reviled or talk evil of me? I don't like that. I hate that. I don't rejoice. What does that say? Well, I'll tell you what it says. It says, Dean is alive and well. Alive and well. And Jesus, in the fullness of the Spirit of me, is not. And what further does that tell tell me is that it really, if I was to be honest, if I was to look at it and say, you know, blessed are, am I hungry? Blessed are those who are hungry. Am I hungry? Or if I maybe, oh yeah, I was a long time ago. Not so hungry anymore. I'm feeling pretty chill. Am I, do I see myself as this poor, 
wretched man who desperately needs Jesus? Do I weep over my condition and look at myself and see myself and see that? And does it even bother me? And that's what concerns me is how little it bothers me. Does that seem to be the worst? Is to hear it, to know it, and not even be stirred by it? To me, that just, oh Lord, God, have mercy on me. That I would see my poor condition. That I would be hungry, truly hungry to be satisfied by you. That I would weep over where I'm at. And I know for a matter of fact that I would be filled with the fullness of God. And here's something else. Part of it, and as we talked at the men's retreat, it started becoming more and more clear to me. As we realized, what are the things in your life that are like these little precious idols that you have? And a lot of times we think, you know, we're called by Jesus, as we talked about at the retreat, to die daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And then Jesus offers you life for that. And if you don't, there's death on the other side of that. So you think of the things that you consider precious, that you delight in, the gifts that God has given you that you began to love and to delight in. And, and you think of, think of offering those up to the Lord and say, Lord, they're yours. I give them to you. I present them to you. I die to myself. My agenda, my time, my schedule, my control, my, my desire to control, my everything, my life. Here is my life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I don't live. The I, me, doesn't live any longer. I give you my life completely. Take it. It's all yours. I present my body as a living, sacrificing to you, pleasing to the Lord. Here is, you have given me everything and you've blessed me and I give it back to you. And it dumps like a dump truck from heaven comes upon your head and fills you. But often it's like this. What's behind your back, Dean? Um, um, I don't want to tell you. Right? With one hand, we say we offer it. And with the other, it's behind our backs holding on to it. But, as all this is alluding to, blessed, happy are those who lose their life. Blessed are those who have nothing and come to Jesus for everything. Blessed. Blessed. It's the most blessed thing that could ever happen. And may it happen to us. Amen. Father, we're so very thankful that you, your word speaks loud and clear and we're ashamed before you. We're ashamed, Father, that we have grown to love the gifts more than the giver. We've taken your gifts and we've made idols out of them and we've fallen in love with them more than we love you. Father, you know the idols of our hearts. You know the things in our lives that we call precious, that we delight in. 
You know those things that we love more than you. You know the things that we hesitate to smash, to give up. Oh, Father, may we see ourselves as poor, blind, and wretched, having nothing. And may we be brought to weeping as we bring all the trashy idols before you and lift them up to you and, 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 and long for your filling. Father, have mercy on us this morning. And may we truly take our lives and let them be consecrated holy to thee. Amen. Amen.